Hello and welcome to the Interior Design Business, the monthly podcast produced by the Interior Design Community for the Interior Design Community. My name is Jeff Hayward and I'm here with my co-presenter, Susie Rumbold, Creative Director of Tasuta Interiors in the offices of Taylor House in Knightsbridge. For this show, we're joined by Jane Landino and Helena Lowry at Taylor House to discuss interior design for historic buildings. In the UK, we are blessed with a huge stock of incredible old buildings. In fact, around 30% of all our homes were constructed before the year 1910. Many of these properties are quite rightly protected by strict laws designed to preserve their historic features and, at the same time, maintain our lovely streetscapes. In the UK, buildings deemed worthy of national preservation are listed and depending on how unique and precious they are, they are categorised as either Grade 1 or Grade 2. In addition, there are locally listed buildings in most areas which are known as buildings of townscape merit. But wonderful as these buildings are, they were designed for the way people in previous generations lived and worked, which is a far cry from the way we live and work today. Plus, many of them are fragile and in need of repair. They are hard to heat and their roofs leak, and they are constructed and decorated using obsolete materials that are difficult to maintain and no longer comply with building regulations. This presents a real challenge for interior designers working in this sphere. Is it possible to sensitively repurpose these outmoded historic structures and make them relevant for modern use? And what is the role of the interior designer as protector and custodian of our national heritage? Welcome to the interior design business. Right, here we are at Taylor House, and we're delighted to welcome as our guests for this episode, Jane Landino and Helena Lowry. Helena, before we begin, can you just introduce yourself to our audience? Hi there, um, I'm Helena. I've been at Taylor House um, for seven years now, I'm director for four years, um, and I my, had a previous life in high-end super yacht design. Um, so my background is very much the kind of high end of private interior design. Um, and interestingly, um, some of the yachts I used to work on, um, although many were, were new build, there were a lot of older boats that we worked with. And actually a lot of what I was interested in was the kind of maintaining integrity of the original um, whilst you know, whilst allowing the client to live to their, their modern day needs and requirements. So, so um, coming into the resi world, which is an entirely different world of design, in my opinion, from my experience. Um, but there are lots of similarities, especially in London, where we've got this incredible rich wealth of listed properties um, that our clients seem to be enjoying bringing to our door. Great stuff. And Jane, what about you? So I had a slightly different background to Helena. I've been with um, Taylor House for 18 years. And um, prior to that, I was um, in the city of London as an interdealer broker. So I had a very different career. I retrained at KLC. I did the year diploma and um, begged to get work experience at Taylor House. And basically, they haven't been able to get rid of me ever since. So I've been here <laughs> for 18 years and gradually worked my way up. I'm now designing creative head of studio and um, I love it. There's nowhere else I'd rather be. So obviously my background is slightly different to Helena, but we both share an absolute passion for the buildings that we're kind of given custodial kind of care of whilst we bring them back to their life and repurpose them for their for their new inhabitants. And I think that's key to what we do as interior designers. I always say there are two clients. There 
is the, the client themselves in person and then the other client is the property that you're given because they both have their own briefs. So the property will very much speak to you and have a history and have its own needs and requirements with how it needs to be treated and respected. Mm -hmm. And the same with a client that's going to be inhabiting that property. They've also got their wish list. And quite often it's it's marrying the two and, and making that sort of coherent and, and sensitive and and what a lot of our clients, we have a lot of international clients, obviously, they're buying in London, and then many of them buying grade two listed properties, um, particularly because we're dealing at that end of the market. Um, they maybe don't understand the whole concept of um, listed properties and how the English heritage works with that framework, you know, quite often they come in and they say, well, why can't we just knock it all down, strip it all out? So we have to go through the process of explaining why it's legally, but also historically explaining to them, you know, how the house would have been lived in and how we now need to take it forward to live, you know, and in its next stage of life, really. So listing is something that's quite peculiarly English, is that right, Susan? Yeah, it's it's something that really only exists in the UK. Lots of other countries in the world have versions of listing, but they tend to be the big public buildings and the big historic monuments. Um, I know I know of no other country in the world that has a listing system that actually includes normal run-of-the-mill domestic architecture of marriage. That's true. It's true. And so many clients just don't understand it. They don't understand why they have to get permission. They don't understand why they're not allowed to do. They bought the property, they own it, why they're not allowed to do what they want to it. So it's it's kind of explaining, you know, why we want to keep the heritage of these beautiful buildings and also how they can be restored sympathetically. Also, you know, bending to how modern families want to live. So there are tricks we can play. There's always a bit of push and pull with regards to you know, what we are hoping to get from the planners, what, you know, we're hoping to get from conservation officers. So it's that delicate balance of, you know, asking for some areas, giving in some. It's a bit of a negotiation, really, as to what you can get away with. Also, a lot of some of the clients you're saying about what levels they do and don't understand is, is actually the kind of gravity of if, God forbid, something has been done to a property, um, without the relevant permissions mm. and we have had clients have come had, through the door yeah. where they've done stuff to a property you know 10 years or so ago and now tried to sell it and it's everything's hit the fan. There was a grade two listed pub down in Battersea a few years ago that was bought by a, a gentleman who decided he was going to ride roughshod over the listed building system and he demolished it in the middle of the night and the planners made him put it back again. Yeah. But not only did they make it put it back, put, make him put it back again, they made him put it back exactly as it had been. So all those really expensive things like the lath and plaster mm. and all those, you know, we, in my intro I mentioned the fact that so many of the materials now are obsolete. So therefore you don't have people that can redo those anymore except specialists at vast expense. Mm. And they made him put it back brick by brick and lathe by lathe and corners by corners and actually a lot of those features may not have even been still in it when he'd bought it you know if if any of those elements had been eliminated along the way that you know he was having to take it back to it a, a period even before that but i think what what our clients don't understand is that the from a conservationist point of view um 
you there is a historical layering to a building so they you know they might not have the original period fireplace and it might have been replaced with something hideous in the 1970s but because that is part of the historical layering of the building they are not allowed to change it or remove it even if they wanted to put an original back in. So what is exactly the difference between grade one and grade two listing? So grade one listed is when you're not allowed to touch anything internally or or externally without prior consent. You cannot remove anything, a molding, an architrave, a door, you can't take anything out. Grade two typically, but not always, tends to be about the exterior of the building. So they're more concerned about doors, windows, things like that. However, often they will also be concerned about all those internal decorative features. So typically it's moulding, skirting boards, architraves, cornices, fireplaces, doors, doors, windows, window frames. So there's a real crossover between what the architect needs to be involved in and what the interior designer needs to be involved in. Is that, is that no, the case? I think the interior designer is pretty much in there right from the beginning yeah, I and then, agree with that. And then yeah. just to clarify then you have this system of what they call um, buildings of townscape merit which exist in most parts of the UK where you have a building that is key to the way the streetscape looks so that's like grade two listing but at a local level so it doesn't appear on a national register but the local authority if you're applying to change that building will still say no it's a building of landscape merit there are certain things you may not do okay got it Right then, so a client comes to you with a historic building. What's the first thing that uh, you need to do in terms of educating them? I think the first thing is to find out, is it listed? So the very first question we ask them is, do they know, is it on the purchase um, particulars? Is it a listed property? Because that will affect from day one how we treat, treat it. We always state the listing and the status of the listing in our fee proposals and yeah. actually state in that first introduction in the fee proposal what the implications for that are so that there is absolutely no room for misunderstanding. That's, that's a very good idea. I mean, definitely in the first meeting, we're already having the conversations about, you know, you've bought a beautiful building. It's got some amazing um, properties. There are these things that we are going to have to consider when we plan it out, you know, with regards to spatial planning, what we are allowed to do, what we're not allowed to do, you know, with regards to, oh, has it got downlights in already? Has it not? You know, are we allowed to put them in? Probably not if it is a, a grade two listed and if it's got period features with pendant points. You know, there's a whole list of things that we will go through throughout the design process. What you don't want to do, I guess, in the initial meeting is, you know, scare the client to death that they've bought this thing that they're, they're never yeah. going to be and able to be, be no, live no, no, in no, and it's going to be a museum that they're not going to be able to do anything to because that's a misconception that isn't really the case mm -hmm. and you know most of the projects we work on and certainly I would say maybe 50% of the projects in the studio 40% maybe yeah. are grade two listed yeah. because that's the nature of working in London and Mayfair and Knightsbridge of Argravia you oh, yeah. can do you can make them into livable properties and they definitely are but also, quite often, you are allowed to do certain things yeah. so long as you've asked the question. What Absolutely. you mustn't do is not do it, not ask. And that's, exactly. when they get, that's when they get crossed. That's exactly, yeah. So you've got to have the conversations with the right people. It's often getting the right um, planning people involved 
at the right stages, talking to the right conservation officers. And sometimes what people don't understand is it's luck of the draw as to who you get appointed. So it's a rather unique method in the UK, I think, um, that your conservation officer, you know, it, it's, it really is luck of the draw, Susie, isn't it? Sometimes, you know, it depends on what side of the road you've bought on, who your conservation officer mm. is and how amenable they are to change. There isn't a, there isn't a standard rule. It it very much depends on if you've got an approachable, friendly conservation officer. Yeah, I don't think you can ever guarantee that something will be a dead cert in the planning. No. So al- although you can say, well, as a precedent, we've done X, Y and Z before, that can never really count as a guarantee that you could do it again. And that's what's a bit difficult. But, you know, like Jane said, having someone that's got an experience maybe in that area or having done a similar kind of thing that's put together a report um, that goes to planning officers and has got that experience, that can always help um, from from our experience. We, we also we also find that you can negotiate to an extent yes. too. I have been in situations where in, in, in as the West End in Marylebone where I've negotiated to be able to remove certain things because I was agreeing to put back Absolutely. the original Others, front door yeah. with the pilasters and spending a lot of my clients' money um, you know, on additional plaster work and things to be allowed yeah. to do. So, you know, we'll do this for you if you let me do that. I think it's mm. definitely a conversation. You want to get, if you're an interior designer, you want to get that conversation officer on board and you want to be having a friendly conversation with them that it, it works two ways. Um, we recently completed a grade two listed manor house on the state um, in Essex and... Um, you know, the previous owner had stripped out a lot of the original features and they were just so glad that actually we were coming back in, putting in a lot of those features, you know, restoring some of the beautiful cornice work and panelling um, that actually they allowed us to do an awful lot and, and they were very grateful for us to come in and, and add back in those period features. So I think definitely it, it's to go in to have a conversation at the early stages is a discussion um, and to get that person on side and, and to have it, it's a give and take relationship. And so that the conservation officer realises that you're not the sort of designer who's going to go and just willingly start ripping things out. No. If they feel that you yeah. have some empathy for the building Absolutely. and some sympathy for what they're trying to achieve, I think you're going to have a much better working relationship. Definitely, yeah. definitely. So at what point do you need to commission an historic report? That's become something that's now part of all the list of building applications, certainly that we put in. We have to, we have to commission a, 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 an historic report and we have a specialist historic architect that produces those for us. And what she does is she unpicks the building backwards. So she'll look at the original structure and she'll date it and then she'll, she'll then trace through all the subsequent alterations to that building and she produces these amazing drawings that are color coded so it's really clear you can see what was 18th century 19th century 20th century and so on and so on and from that she can come up with a strong case as to what's worthy of preservation and what in fact can be removed without harm to the original fabric interesting we've worked with a specialist um david who has done things like that before and again that's someone that the client would um appoint separately under our advice or discussion with us and, and the and the bigger team um, and then they'd compile something like that, again, based on their kind of history. And then we would review it and check that it's in line with what we think's right and what the client would be happy with, but also with the sim- sympathetic eye to what's, you know, the, the actual history. Um, 
so and there's usually kind of options within the document that that goes to the planners where there can be a degree of pick and choosing again for each area do you think generally planners are trying to preserve too much that's not worthy of preservation? Um, it's a difficult one because, again, as I had said before, it depends on who you get. So um, in some cases, I've I found them very liberal. In other cases, i found them very, very restrictive. Um, and it does tend to come down to who you're dealing with on a personal basis. It is also the case that you get certain pockets, and I'm thinking about Gloucester Place, uh, which is a street that runs up through um, the West End of, of London, and those houses were all built around the 1840s, that when that area was developed, and they, they have a particular issue that you, you can't get modern services into them, and the, the Council Westminster have actually taken a decision that there are certainly certain things that you may not do to those buildings, and because a lot of them have been used as kind of cheap bedsit style hotels over the years. They're pretty trashed anyway. So there's not that much that's left in there, but people are not going to buy them and turn them back into beautiful family homes if, for example, they have to walk up five or six flights of stairs to get to the top of the house. And the council have just turned around and said, no, absolutely, under no circumstances, may you put a lift in. So people aren't buying them. It's a shame. It and really so what will happen is that the, the rain gets yeah. in, the roof fails, and then they fall down. And then what are they going to do with them? So there, yeah. there comes a point where actually there has to be a modicum of common, common sense. sense. I agree. And I think sometimes, you know, you do come up against um, a little bit of a, of a hard approach from their side where there isn't too much flexibility and that can be challenging, particularly uh, when you are restoring something. So um, we worked on a project, um, Helen in particular, about five years ago where we were actually restoring, it was one unique dwelling which was split into five, as you were saying, Susie, horrible kind of flats and we were restoring it into one dwelling for a family as it would have been in its era and putting back all the beautiful corners. But there were real restrictions on what we could do in the basement. This was really interesting because it was actually owned by... Um um, a museum in the area so it had um, elements of it that had been divided into flats for different types of dwellings I'm not really sure of who and then the basement particularly the the basement areas um, had been divided and panelled and all kinds of things done for uh, use for the museum which was really interesting um, and quite exciting in a way but what we had to do so there was lots of panelling and uh, and elements, very traditional elements that turned out really oddly not to be part of the listing, even though they looked, you know, superficially like, you know, that that was going to have to be some areas that stayed. So we actually got to strip back loads of this this stuff and reveal even more interesting list elements behind. Um, and then um, what the the problems we faced there were were that this particular client needed to have air conditioning everywhere um, and uh, WC, um, wa separate water systems in, in, the in all the bathrooms um, and separate types of kind of kitchens with extractions dotted around throughout the property, um, lots of lighting, lo lots of different um, contemporary um, elements to living um, that straight off lots of these weren't... Um, compatible. We, yeah, weren't they weren't compatible. sympathetic, and that's the and, biggest challenge, yeah. isn't it? Incorporating M and E yeah, and M &E modern was, tech into these buildings. And what, what what was also then, you know, 
we were really excited because I had never seen, uh, uh, we uncovered some of the most incredible plaster work I felt lucky enough to have ever seen. And, um, and the client, you know, was like, yeah, it's, it's great. Um, <laughs> we were like <laughs> jumping for joy, but we knew, so we looked into it, spoke to some of our specialists and we knew it was going to be about, well, it ended up being a six month process, stripping back all the layers of dirt, paint that had been applied to all this existing stuff, but obviously to restore it, which, and this was something that worked well in our favor with the planners. We, we put forward that we wanted to restore it and get it back to its kind of crisp, beautiful original. Um, so this was done over a six month period because it's such fine, delicate work. You can imagine the intricacies of these plaster. Which he, they never would have known that that cost was, let alone the length of time. Um, and then obviously we can't even put lighting or AC or whatever into these ceilings. But what we did do, and it was a very slow process. And I think slowly but surely it was, and it was up to us to kind of convince him of how extraordinary and how unique it was, you know, you're so lucky. Look at this. You've, it's like a ballroom. I've never seen anything like it in London. Well, it was wow. an original was ballroom, ballroom, which was his so living room, it was room, very it like, turned out to be. You know, it might not be your original taste, but once we kind of bigged up the importance and how unique and special it was, um, that ended up, you know, he gradually came around to, like, why we were kind of spending the money on the restoration. And then the best bit was um, we made such a song and dance about how beautiful the plaster was, which it was, that we ended up, he let us take moulds of some of the bits that we liked and we added extra elements, you know, so uh, over doors and separate elements in, because um, there were so many hallways. So we actually added to it these huge four or five metre um, ceiling heights and hallways that actually needed a bit more we felt um, so we kind of turned the whole thing around to um, you know from one extreme of the client coming to us wanting a, a modern conversion on this exciting museum property to then actually um, teaching him and showing him how we could make the most enhance it and it was such a privilege at the end and what was also good is that we showed him how you could still pair that with some more contemporary aspects in the furnishing or some of the you know some of the interchangeable elements that weren't going to affect the kind of listed you know um whether it's window treatments or um or even just normal decoration. But that's such a chic look to put yeah. super, oh, super contemporary furniture into a really very, amazing yeah. um, period space. Very cool. And very it, cool. It also goes to show that there doesn't need to be, um, you know, a style that we subscribe to when we're doing design now. Um, you know, Particularly you within listed buildings, yeah. there isn't a rule. You don't have to have swags and tails if you've got listed no. mouldings and cornice. You can suddenly go very Parisian and put in, you know, super cool um, gallery pieces yeah. and contemporary pieces and offset the, juxtapose the old with the new. I mean, actually, that's the fun play with interior design is that yeah. you don't always have to pay. You can offset things. Yeah. Um, but part of the pleasure of dealing with listed building, quite often, you know, quite fun, is actually when you get the historical report and you have a look through the layering and, and you know, you get the photographs back. We recently um, were working on a grade two listed house, which is has been within the family that, that still owns it for 40 years. And it was only when we looked through the historical report that we discovered that actually the garden was designed by Gertrude Jekyll. There we go. Amazing. Mm. And they, they never knew this. They'd owned the property, you know, like I say, 40 years, never realised. And so we are actually, we have a, a an amazing garden designer, Jane Brown, who is, 
you know, doing a fantastic job on bringing the back, the garden back to its glory. And the garden is the longest garden in London. It's very thin, <laughs> very <laughs> narrow, but it is the longest garden in London. And, you know, so that's really beautiful to find out those things, to discover that it's still got the original servant spells. Um, I'm not sure what they're called. The um, yeah. upstairs, downstairs, Downton Abbey, um, Abbey bells, <laughs> yeah. you know, which you absolutely want to keep. And, you know, that you can you know tell your client about we found an old silver safe in a property and we've exposed that because it's so beautiful I was like you've got to have it on display um and just recently in the um estate we're working on out of town which um had a lot of the period features have been stripped out um I did a lot of research into the property and um actually found out that it was owned by Admiral Coburn, who was the last naval admiral to sail Napoleon to his final resting place in St. Helena. Our client, by some weird streak of fate, was really passionate about the Navy and military history. He was overjoyed when I found this out about the house. We then did this amazing sort of maritime-themed room. It's very traditional property. Um, so we had, you know, beautiful paintings on the ceiling restored, all the cornice work, um, lots of gilding, lots of panel moulding, um, de Gournay wallpaper. I mean, it was absolute joy. And the client couldn't believe their luck that they found out the history that married so well with kind of what they wanted and what, what appealed to them. So that was a really fun project to work on. And I think possibly interior designers might look at listing and think, oh, it's going to be a painful oh, project. No, but no. actually what you're saying is yeah. it can be really inspiring really and liberating. Really inspiring and actually can be a sparking point for something in the design. In fact, you know, there should be something that speaks to you in the house that you then take forward into the design, some architectural detailing, some, you know, design in the moulding that then you bring with you and you maybe translate into some element of your new design that you're putting back into the house. Um, Helen and I worked on the old war office. We were very privileged to be able to do the spatial planning for the old war office, which is obviously hugely um, important listed building. Um, it has two miles of listed corridor inside the building, which we had to incorporate into the apartments we were planning. But this amazing listed corridor had this beautiful tiled, um, almost 1920s fan design, wasn't it? Yeah, like a cre mosaic of uh, like a um, crescent mosaic that just repeated all the way through these corridors really unique so we took this one motif and developed it into beautiful door handles that we were going to take throughout the property so that one motif repeated in our design and in our concepts and actually the door handles now form part of the range for SA Baxter and they've released them as part of their range which is really lovely um, but it's always nice to bring a reference through from the old when you're doing your design to bring it forward and into it the give, 21st century it gives gives a kind of a rationale as well and you know especially in it we're always looking for the next new thing best thing new material that no one else has used before you know there's a lot of looking forward but looking back is such a you know we find yeah it's really such a source of inspiration forget about it. we get so caught up in like the next new thing and and actually especially with like the hot topic of sustainability like reuse and antiques and um being clever with existing things is so valuable and important so i think there's a lot to be said for learning you know how things were done 
and made and designed. There's a rationale to everything. And actually understanding that, um, you know, uh, what led people to design or do things well, the way they did is so is so important. And then again, us then educating our team, our clients, our friends, whoever, um, we should be doing this when we can, really. I mean, one of the nice things is explaining to a client, you know, why there were so many rooms or why the room would have been on a half landing or, you know, where the servants' quarters were. And, you know, explaining, talking them through the history of their house actually brings it to life for them. Mm. Um, so I think that's also quite important. You are educating your client. You are um, explaining to them why the planning officers and conservation officers have the views that they have, but also pushing the envelope a lot of the time as well as to, okay, just because someone says you can't do something doesn't mean that you can't ask again, because we have been very successful when we have pushed back a couple of times on, you know, what you're allowed to do, what you're not allowed to do. And there are some areas where we've said, look, we really, really think this is important to do this. And we've argued our case successfully by giving in on a couple of other points. Um, you know, so I think it's, again, knowing what are your absolute priorities. And is there a hierarchy of rooms within the period property? Some oh, might be more protective than others. Yeah. Oh, in terms of protection? No, there would have been a hierarchy in terms of layering of detailing. So definitely your ground floor, first floor would have more of the period featured mouldings and details that would have been where the money was spent in, in those days. Basement obviously would have had back of house staff areas in, so would be less important in terms of historical layering. And the top floors again would have um, less important corners and skirting and doors. Yeah, so it's evidence. There's a historical hierarchy of but spaces. But as a consequence of that, obviously those tend to be the rooms that are the most protected. So yes. you can get away with more yes, change yes. in those less yes, significant right. yeah. in those less, less significant parts of the of, yeah. the of the building. And also precedence is looking at you know what else has been done to the neighbours' properties, a lot of it is precedence and luck. Mm. Well, yes, in the property we were talking about earlier, I know on the top floors, there were nine, well, six ground and then up six and two below. But there were lots of little kitchenettes and bits on, you know, in the upper floors where there'd been apartments. And I don't really know how it all got in, but there was definitely the areas where you could see they'd um, been able to make, um, or they had ever owned it before, had been able to, get bits in and those floors but the but the the ground floor first floor even you can see it even with ceiling heights and skirting heights it's all windows and pro just proportions and scale um I'm just still waiting for the time we can like uncover treasure or dead body <laughs> or some like we've not had any breeze holes we did we did do an enormous um property 10 bedroom house on the edge of what had been the um St George's Hanover Square burial ground and we were just waiting because we dropped yeah. a three and a, three and a half thousand square foot basement under that property. And, you know, it was my heart was in my mouth the entire time they were in there digging because I thought any minute now, any minute now. Um, because, of course, that's where they buried all the people that were hung at, um, at Tyburn. And then it's, if it's not dead bodies, then it's um, Roman unexpl remains. or unexploded bombs. Because we're actually doing Have you a come site. Across that? Well, yes, we. Um, well, just next to the building site we're on at the moment, just off Tom Court Road, um, was shut down the, the other day because they found an unexploded bomb on the site next door. So, um, yes. One of the joys of working in And then London. you mentioned archaeology. Oh, Roman, yes, remains yes, Roman remains in London is a big problem. So, um, I have a, a, a 
colleague that I we work with from time to time who runs a, a big uh, uh, property development company in the in the city, and they set aside a million pounds for archaeology as part of their um, contingencies for every single project that they do. And they insist that the client sets aside a million pounds because if you're working in or around the old city of London, you know, the chances are you're going to dig down three feet and come across a Roman temple. Um, and so that's what they do. And if they don't find the Roman temple, then they give the money back to the client. And the client's very pleased. Yeah. But they, they always have to have this conversation right from yeah. the off saying, you know, you will set this money aside because if you don't, we will find something. Yeah, allow for what mm. the what you could not imagine would possibly And then if we don't use it, you can go away and upgrade your yacht. Oh, you can say to them, we might uncover treasure, and then, or an old art, or I'm not sure they're allowed to keep it, though. They find treasure, that's the problem. Yeah, we didn't find treasure, no. And moving on from dead bodies, what about decorative features? What do you typically have to be guarding against in a listed property? I think we touched on it earlier, don't we? It's all those all those lovely things like the mouldings, the architraves, the doors, the window frames, the skirting boards, the fireplaces. Fireplaces can be a, a particularly um, tricky one. Often they've been stolen. That, that's a, There's a big thing that goes on. We've had a couple of sites where we've been halfway through a build and we've people have turned up on site on the Monday morning to find that it's been broken into over the weekend and all the fireplaces have vanished. Um, it's a bit upsetting when that happens. Mm. So the interior designer must have a really good network, a black book of specialists to oh, help. Oh, absolutely. We we restored um, we restored the panelling in a library, which had been... So the panelling was interesting because it was actually older than the house. The panelling dated from about 1780 and the house was 1830. And we think the panelling came out of a house in Paris when Haussmann was putting the boulevards through Paris and de- demolishing large swathes of Paris. And lots of those architectural features from the houses were being flushed out onto the UK market or the the English market. They'd have sold whole rooms. Because Mm. England had all the money and Mm. France wasn't in such a great state at the time. And so this panelling was actually shorter than the room. So there's an enormous ceiling void above because they actually shrunk the room to fit the panelling. But when we started working on the house, it had been painted and it took a a specialist team six weeks um, with breathing equipment and the most toxic chemicals and sort of, you know, unbelievable job to, to bring it back to to life but it was it was the most amazing job. I was going to say we just worked on a property on Queensgate Gardens recently where um, you know we always wondered why you know the the um, ceiling seemed quite low for that period of property and I said I know that's a full ceiling and and again we discovered a meter's worth <laughs> we took away the full ceiling and discovered this incredible cornice and molding and beautiful ceiling rows and we again they just lost a meter at some stage in the process in the 70s, someone had put in full ceiling when it was allowed. And then, you know, so that's the joy when you discover those lovely uh, period elements. And many of these materials can be quite hard to restore. And really difficult too when something is badly degraded and actually it's it's got to the point where it really can't genuinely be restored. I'm thinking about cornices that you get sometimes where ceilings have moved and cracked and they're, you know, they've been so painted up that you really can't get any crispness or definition back into them. And sometimes you just have to say to the panelists that we'll take a squeeze, mm. a mould from the best preserved, or we'll clean one section and then we'll take a mould from that section that we've cleaned and we will then replicate that back around the room. And quite often they're amenable to that sort of thing. Yeah, and it's knowing your suppliers. So we recently um, did a, a lot of plaster work on a project, new plaster work and replicating old plaster work. And, you know, George Jackson, um, who are just based outside London, have the most incredible collection of period mouldings and, and they can replicate anything. And actually what surprised me the most is they don't 
don't replicate it in plaster, they replicate it in plastic, which is a better crisper finish to paint now to match into the plaster, which I was amazed the conservation officer didn't have a problem with, but they actually said, no, it's a better finish. Um, you would never know it wasn't plaster, but they had the most incredible crisp detailing on it. And they were taken from molds of originals. So, you know, if you know your suppliers, you have, um, great decorators that are able to strip back and can deal with these period properties, builders who have a sensitivity to a listed, you know, building. And it's understanding that, yes, the walls are going to be start slightly out. You know, the floor's not going to be level. So when you're doing your design, it's accounting for those changes in level and fluctuations, which are the beauty of the building. I yeah. think that's one of the hardest things to sell to clients, though, yeah. particularly clients coming from abroad. Mm. Yeah. They're buying their beautiful London home and they want it to be perfect and they don't want the floors no. to be uneven and they don't want the staircase to be sagging and they don't want the ceilings to be drooping. You know, They want it all to be 90 degree angles. And it's, it's a, it's, it can be a very hard sell. That must be quite a challenge to be negotiating in that position because you know what's allowed and you know they can't do. Well, it, you can't want. change levels at door openings typically. So you can often you can do things to, we restored a series of three interconnecting ballrooms on a job and the floors could only be described as ships at sea. I mean, it was like up and down and up and down and up and down. And we set laser levels across the floor and then it took me hours of, of working out, you know, up up five mil, down five mil, up five mil, down eight mil, up 12 mil to, to get the best levelest finish that I could across these floors. And then they basically put feathered pieces on top of the joists to actually achieve that and then relay the floor. What about when you're uh, taking one building and converting it from something into a residential property? So we had an example of that when we did a church conversion in Knightsbridge. Um, it actually had already been um, partially converted badly by the previous owner. Um, and, and it was extraordinary actually, because the front half of the building is still currently an operational church. And the back half has been sold for private use. Um, and the difficulty with the church is you have the volume of space, but you don't have the lateral space that you need in order to get bedrooms in, certain amount of bedrooms. So we had, you know, 14 meter ceilings. Um, we had huge glazed windows, but then we had to put floors in that went halfway across these amazing listed glazed windows. Um, and again, that required um, a lot of modeling up in 3D. Um, it's where your sort of um, 3D modeling really comes in handy. So you can actually turn the space, go through the space um, and work out from all angles the implications of putting in floors, putting a lift into the property and how that goes through the space, what it hits. You know, we had flying buttresses, arches. We had, you know, again, you know, these amazing stone angels up at 13 meters high that we wanted to light. But then how do you change a light bulb? So, you know, there were actually we discovered crawl spaces up in the top of the church that we could get light bulbs changed within. But then it was putting in an electric staircase that then could come down to access the crawl spaces. It was, um, you know, a real challenge and possibly the most difficult job to think of in 3D of how you get all the functionality that a client wants within a five bedroom house within 
the, the volume and space of a church and also getting the crypt almost like a crypt below which we actually turned into a spa and it was the most incredible um serene spa it had that real um kind of calm and quietness purely because it had a rich like was was in the in the basement of the church mm-hmm. those kind of volumes aren't normal whatever normal means but in a, a kind of family property and making it warm and acoustically viable and also you know it's a religious was a religious space ultimately for a long period of time and that you know whoever's living there is not there for that reason so it's but you're still highlighting and um enhancing some of these original ecclesiastical yeah pictures. elements which were there for a religious reason mm. um but fitting that into a home for me it was a perfect marriage between a client who was happy for us to take the lead on the vision they loved the they bought the building because they loved it they loved the volume of the space um they had their list of requirements um and um it was almost a perfect marriage you know we worked on it for two years um and sadly um they decided they were going to sell it a month before we were due to finish and before they were due to move in which is heartbreaking when you've been so closely mm. well, you know because these projects become your babies that you are absolutely you breathe and uh, you know you eat sleep drink every hour every day as these projects and you're you know working on them day and night and um, so they decided they're going to put it on the market. It had a very, it had something very serene about it. And I think that came from the um, fabric of the building. There is something intangible about some of these buildings. They have a feel to them. Um, I know it sounds a bit airy-fairy, but there is a soul to a building. And there are some houses that you walk into and they have a great feel about them um, and this property just happened to feel very calm and peaceful and I think that comes from its original use. Something you touched on earlier too I think we always say we always tell our clients that these buildings have a way of setting their own pace. They do. You can't hurry a listed building yeah. so you might in theory say it's a 12-month build but actually you just have no idea what you're going to uncover when you no. s- once you start unpicking things. That's absolutely and you have to it's your responsibility to say to a client at the outset that you know the ideal case scenario with no kind of nothing going wrong would be 12 months but we know from experience having worked on many of these buildings you know for for numerous years you know at Taylor House we've done Oh gosh, nearly a thousand projects in 25 years. We just know that there are things that come up that you haven't planned for. And and it's being able to kind of be flexible and amend your design to fit the requirements on site because there are always things that change. It's responding to the unforeseeables, the inevitable unforeseeables. Yeah. And again, that's educating the client that, you know, part of kind of the contingency as well of and you're investing in a property like this is there will be unforeseeables. We will deal with them and get round them, but there's no guaranteeing what time that'll add or what cost it'll be. Um, we know that we will always get to a good design solution. But so it pays to be as upfront as possible about the time, the likely costs, the specialist costs that are going to be involved. It's just gently, slowly educating them um, that there, there may be a possibility that these things happen along the way so that they're not you know surprised or taken aback when they do happen so it is managing it's managing expectations which is what interior design is all about it's managing expectations and and communication 
you know, communication with your client and letting them know, you know, the reasons behind things happening. How do you go about uh, managing services within these buildings? The biggest challenge for us is always finding the service routes through the buildings. The other challenge, of course, is, is then accommodating the bits of kit that go onto the end of those service routes. But if you can find those routes through the building that the planners won't object to too much. So what we tend to do is we tend to try and get our service routes into those less significant parts of the building. Quite often there'll be a closet wing on the Absolutely. back of the building, which probably was the service staircase, servant staircase, and box rooms and maybe maids' bedrooms and things. So it doesn't tend to have any um, precious features. And you can kind of put a service route through there that you can then tee off on all levels to, to get your, your your wiring and your lighting and your cabling and your air conditioning and everything else in. When the client, the first time they sit down, they say, oh, I want air conditioning throughout, as if it's just this easiest given in the world is just, and it's not even um, international, you know, it's actually lots of clients now from everyone. I think it's a fairly yeah. universal expectation actually these days. Um, so it's, um, yeah, there's, again, it's kind of, educating um but if we know it from the beginning and everyone's getting more what you don't want to do is retrofit it that is the worst Mm. thing ever um i um was went around a project with a builder recently who'd been asked to retrofit air conditioning and the the you know destruction was was you know the cost as well to retrofit Mm. has to be incorporated from the beginning so if you're working on an apartment within a listed building it's making sure you get the correct license to alter and having a conversation about whether or not they even allow air conditioning some buildings don't allow air conditioning so although your client may insist on it it may not be as simple as it first you know turns out so what advice would you have for designers it sounds like it's going to be prepare and educate and manage expectations yeah i think it's managing expectations it's also not being afraid to you know really do your research and and find out you know these buildings are amazing and thinking about the people that lived in them over the years you know, find out some history you know we 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 looked at a blue pack project recently and i found out about you know the person who was on the plaque and it was just amazing the information and you know london's history is unique and we should celebrate it. We should be talking about it in our design. It should relate. You know, there's no reason why you can't bring that forward. So I think in your in your redesign for a new era and for a new family, you know, we can bring some of the beauty of the past with us. Um, it, it's not a hindrance necessarily. Um, and I think that is all part of the joy of working on listed buildings. They are, it, they're so unique. Each and every one is completely unique. Um, and so it has it's, a different story. They have them. a different story. Mm. Yeah. And so it, it's a real privilege to work on them. Yeah. Tackle it with, a, you know, from the outset, it's, it's exciting and it's positive. Yes. There's work to it and there's research and there's the unforeseeables, but it's from the, from the get go being that excited force with your client that's, even if they weren't aware of it, it's bringing that to the table and making it, you know, we always say um, our projects with our clients is, is, is an experience and a journey. You know, you're getting to know your clients so intimately, the way they live, the way they want to live, as obscure as it might be to us or not. Um, and helping them bring that to life in any property is a kind of a privilege. Um, but let alone when you're, we're lucky enough to, um, be doing it with these properties on our doorsteps that on a normal day I'd never get to even see oh, past yeah. the door. I mean, what's 
one of the joys is going that first visit to site when you walk in through the door, particularly if someone hasn't lived in the property for 40 years. You know, it still amazes me that there are houses in London that have not been touched for 30 or 40 years. And you go in and you think, oh, goodness this is amazing mm. and you know the 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 excitement and vision that you can have with it of 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 creating something new in it bringing back the glory um and bringing some love back you know these buildings we need to preserve them for the next hundred years um so it's yeah it's bringing the love back to the building it's listening to it it's understanding what works within it and guiding your client through that kind of journey which which should be really rewarding for both sides, I think. Thank you to Susie, to Jane and to Helena for sharing their thoughts with us today. And thank you also to Taylor House for being our very generous hosts. You can find the interior design business on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts and anywhere you get your audio on demand. We're on Twitter at IntDesignPod and on Instagram and Facebook at Interior Design Business Pod. This episode of the Interior Design Business is a Wildwood and Alfie Media production. Mm-hmm.